I'm Elena. And I'm Sophia. And you are listening to Bookshelf Remix, a spoiler full podcast where two scholars read pop fiction by underrepresented authors and geek out with deep dives. Today we'll be discussing Jhumpa Lahiri's Pulitzer Prize winning recent novel, Whereabouts. So it was originally published as Dove Mi Trovo, which is where I find myself. A little different than Whereabouts. So, Lahiri originally wrote and published Whereabouts in Italian, and then self-translated the novel for an English-speaking audience. Written from the perspective of a mid-career academic living in some unspecified part of Italy, the novel ponders the meaning of life through a variety of locations and encounters. Whereabouts plays with perspective, exploring how the character's focus and thoughts change depending on her context and what she is accomplishing in that place. For example, one chapter on continuous chance encounters with an ex explores the paths not taken in life, while a chapter at the cash register reflects on the character's reluctance to spend money and the childhood circumstances that continue to haunt her spending habits. Each place or context evokes different reactions, allowing us to slowly piece together the portrait of an average life. So how did you feel about the book? I I had mixed feelings reading it, I think. I'm not... I think what this book taught me is that I'm not one for deeply introspective reads. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, you know, I think this is always the challenge of literary fiction is getting into a non-explanatory narrative style that just kind of there's a certain style of literary fiction where it's kind of a discovery process where you just kind of have to keep asking yourself there's no explanation for what this like what is the setting what are what's the context why does any of this matter instead it's kind of a mystery that you have to piece together for yourself who is this person what are the things that make her tick And at the end, I suppose, of the book, the question becomes, what do I think the point of this kind of exercise and reading this book was? I think for me, what I don't enjoy about maybe books like this, like introspective books, is that I'm sort of less interested now in individual perspective than I am in questions of maybe systemic oppression. And I would have been more interested in a character who seemed to, or or in a narrative that offered maybe more obstacles for its character that she could also contemplate more. It's not that this character doesn't have struggles, but they just weren't the kind that I sort of like generally feel are compelling. So like, for example, she's a woman. She obviously faces the struggles that most women face this character, but it felt very, to me, it felt very like generic sort of female narrative and that didn't strongly appeal to me. But that being said, you know, I think if I had been more in the mindset for something that wasn't, that was more contemplative, and if I had approached it more like, I'll read a chapter of this a day, maybe, and just sit with each chapter, I might have enjoyed it more. I think I should have treated it like an anthology, and I tried to treat it like a novel. <laughs> that That's fair, because it's, it's billed as a novel. But I did feel like it was almost a poetry collection in prose. Mm-hmm. Some of the entries were actually quite poetic. And just to be clear to the listeners, I read this in Italian and Sophia read this in English. And th- that was purposeful. We kind of wanted to compare our experiences. And I do feel that I perhaps enjoyed it a bit more because of the Italian. Italian is not my first 
language. It's not even a, a heritage language for me. It just so happened that my father moved to Rome for work when I was eight years old. And so from eight to 12, I grew up like speaking Italian. And I enjoy revisiting novels and books in Italian because it kind of has that nostalgic appeal. And I kind of wanted this book to be more about Rome because that's where Lahiri went to first like immerse herself in the culture when she fell in love with the culture. I was kind of looking for those <laughs> nods to location and we'll be able to get into it more, but we don't really get a huge sense of place as much in this book. So it's definitely felt more like a poetry collection. There is like zero plot. There's like very minimal plot. I do think that the language that is used in Italian really paints a picture of Lahiri finding so much joy in the writing. So you could feel like how happy she was using these like delicious sounding words that sometimes do not translate directly into English. But even if you can translate them easily, the sounds that are made, there's a lot of sg, there's a lot of ts sounds, there's a lot of obviously like open vowel sounds. So you could play, she could play with the words to really kind of create music in a way that I'm sure could not be translated into English because it's so specific to that language. It's, that's another link to poetry and how difficult it is to translate poetry because there's not only imagery, there is the rhythm of the words, the number of the syllables, all of these things that feel very, maybe like in one context might feel very warm and translated, it just comes out cold. Yeah. This is definitely a book where the language it was written in was the real protagonist. <laughs> So I don't see how what you would do once you translate that. It's very hard. Yeah. Yeah. I think the English does not have that same cadence or sense of poetry to it in spite of the fact that Lahiri translated the book herself. I didn't get like a feeling of joy from the book. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't a joy to translate. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and that, that came across in the translation because to me, it just kind of felt like the punishing story of an unhappy, like, 40-something-year-old woman. <laughs> and I was just, like, not really in the mood for it because oh, it was fair. kind of like, I'm sorry, you're, like, not having a good time of it in Italy by yourself with your evidently, like, tenure-track position or something as an academic, just not really <laughs> feeling that sorry for you. Seems like <laughs> life has kind of worked out for you and you're just miserable of your own kind of I don't I mean and not to say that people don't have that kind of like misery or disappointment in their lives but for some reason for me as a reader it was just I don't know maybe I'm just not at the right age to read it I just felt like I don't really feel like well it's very American beauty kind of disillusionment of the average mediocre life basically yeah which I feel like We've kind of had enough of, you know, Michael Chabon has yeah. this great essay about literary fiction called Trickster in a Suit of Lights, where he describes how genre fiction actually used to be also like very literary and that a lot of famous authors from, say, like the 19th to early 20th century wrote genre fiction alongside the things that we recognize today as their kind of 
literary works, but now that literary fiction has become very prescribed at the time he was writing this essay, I think it's expanded a little bit maybe since then, but uh, the way he was describing it was, you know, it's always kind of a Bildungsroman about like a hyper-realist Bildungsroman for the most part. And, uh, and he was like, imagine, imagine this in any other context. Imagine that we had limited ourselves to nurse romances as the only story that you could tell seriously like why mm-hmm. why have we done this to ourselves and i kind of i felt that way as i was reading this book just as, i don't want to tell lahiri that she can't write the book that she wants to write I, but at the same time i also just felt like i didn't need another one of these no i agree with you there and i think it was interesting when we were having our our text conversations you were saying like oh this has such boomer energy like this has such like middle age life crisis and like we're neither one of us there in our lives at the moment and at the same time I was saying like this feels very adolescent this feels very angsty and I saw it as I saw myself a lot in the book but kind of a past Mm -hmm. self I'm not at that state or that phase or that stage in my life it's this strange idea of I recognize this particular brand of melancholy Mm -hmm. and I recognize it on an intimate level but it doesn't speak to me at the moment because I'm not there mentally emotionally and I think the way I responded to you was well I think boomers are sort of adolescent in their mindset (laughs) yeah (laughs) pretty much yeah it's like the return of Saturn like it's uh yeah the the uh... explanations for everything are always very simple from a boomer mindset like there is something sort of adolescent in the way that things get explained. And I think the context of that was I was reading a chapter on like a stationary shop and I was excited to read this chapter. She cannot let go I am of obsessed. this. I did not even notice I am it. obsessed she with stationery. No, and I was like, in the beginning, I was enjoying the chapter because I was like, oh, I know these stationary shops in Italy. You know, I've been to them and I one of my like great pleasures in life when I go to Italy is to stop in at every stationary shop I can find and pick up dip pens and like they make these really beautiful bound volumes that are just blank and often have like marbled paper on the covers and you can kind of find them everywhere really I guess at least in sort of like common tourist locations and then in the novel, the stationery store closes and she is like our, our narrator assumes that it's because they weren't making enough money in stationery. And I was thinking, well, that's not accurate. These stores are everywhere in Italy, <laughs> specifically in tourist locations where people seem to be buying enough of them. <laughs> yeah, to keep the, sh- the little shop on the, like at the bottom of the Spanish staircase open. <laughs> but that's not what bothered you. Or steps, the Spanish steps. Yeah, no. So then I get to the part where she complains that like kids these days don't write anymore by hand. They only <laughs> they only take notes on computers. And, you know, I mean, both Elena and I have taught at the uh, university level. So <laughs> I've not had that experience. I mean, sure, some students use their laptops to take notes, but a lot of them don't. So I just, that disrupted, here we go. Here's Sophia's willing suspension of disbelief a moment. That disrupted my willing suspension of disbelief because I was like, that's such a basic explanation for what is going on with like, I don't know, around the economy of stationery. And actually, if you just opened your eyes and like, I don't know, got on Instagram and looked around, for example, you would find that there's like a whole giant genre 
around okay. handwriting. Handwritten so this note. is where I say what I read in that chapter, which <laughs> is that in addition to this, yes, admittedly kind of technophobe description of woe is to the era of stationary, she does go through other possibility she's like oh yeah there's like rising rent in this neighborhood it must be really hard also this was a family-run business maybe they moved maybe they decided to close shop like sell it and move on so it's not (laughs) as black and white as Sophia is presenting it like sure there is that but in defense of this nameless narrator she is like entertaining like why would it why is it gone I'm sad that it's gone Yeah, well, and also in defense of the nameless narrator, I think it's easy to conflate the author and the narrator and assume that the narrator's position is reflective of the author's position. Whereas, you know, if you think of this as a writing exercise in which she really explores a particular type of personality or character, then it's like, okay, well, I guess there are people who come up with these types of explanations and who like think these things. So good job representing that through this character it was just wasn't for us it wasn't like it was not a book where you're like i see myself or like i want to be friends with this person you're just kind of like oh it's kind of an eleanor rigby moment of like look at all the lonely people yeah yeah (laughs) and i just i don't know i mean i feel like also i didn't benefit from the poetry of it all but I do think I almost want to like add an addendum to the idea that it's a novel like I wish they had maybe put on the cover a novel of impressions because Mm. I feel like if they added the word impressions to it it would sort of tell you the pace at which you need to take this novel in and maybe you know each chapter should be treated like a poem And that you should read it out loud, sit with the language and the message for a while and, you know, accept that this is going to be a book of impressions that you you read and have those impressions yourself over a long period of time. But there's kind of nothing that really sets the pacing for you. So I feel like by the time I finally figured out what was the right pacing for this book, I was finished and I was like, do I go back and try it a different way? given that I haven't enjoyed it so far. (laughs) And that's totally fair. And after the break, we'll be able to talk about the structure of this book and how that had an impact. But before we stop, I wanted to relate a quote in Italian. So I give this quote as a kind of example of Lahiri playing with language. And I was kind of discussing this with Sophia beforehand. And I'm tempted to say it's self-indulgent. But that would be unfair because I don't think it's self-indulgent consistently throughout. But at certain moments, like even I, who was like enjoying this, I was like, okay, now you're just kind of showing us what your vocabulary is. So this is a quote from a chapter called Da Nessuna Parte, which means nowhere. And she's reflect, this is towards the end of the book, and she's reflecting on transience and of like, is there no place where we are not always being transient, basically? And so she she's listing a lot of words for being disorientated, lost, unable to form speech, all of these things. So it goes. Esiste un posto dove non siamo di passaggio? Disorientata, persa, sbalestrata, sballata, sbandata, scombussolata, smarita, spaesata, spiantata, stranita. 
in questa parentella di termini mi ritrovo. Ecco la dimora, le parole che mi mettono al mondo. So you can see like all of the like sounds, all of the... It is really great because it does capture how one concept of feeling lost or disorientated can be represented in so many different ways. Like scombusolata, I particularly like because it's um, busola is the compass. So it's without a compass in like one word. <laughs> so yeah, and like spaisata is like dépaysé in French, like without a country or like out of the country, like completely a culture shock idea, like stranita, being a stranger. So this is a, a taste of what the, the book kind of feels like in Italian. Uh, so it's varying degrees of this. This is like the extreme of like, look at all the SB words that I can put out. Yeah, I think the English does not have that feel. And, you know, sometimes you read books where like you can't help but read them out loud because the like poetry of the language is so beautiful. But I just didn't, I didn't have that experience with this book. But I'm not going to say, I'm not going to say it's a bad book. Like, I feel like I just wasn't the right reader for it so i don't know if you like like super contemplative like explorations of a middle-aged single female author uh, professional mid-career professional then this might be the book for you all right we'll take a break and we'll be back soon Hi, this is Elena, and if you like Gilmore Girls and nerdy thematic recaps, listen to my new podcast, Women of Questionable Morals. Together with my co-host, Soraya Emanuel, we dig into lots of themes like, should Rory date anyone? What is the relationship between wealth and privilege in the show? And which recipe do you want to make from the Gilmore Girls cookbook. If any of this sounds exciting to you, check out Women of Questionable Morals on all of your podcast platforms and find us on Instagram at WOQMPod. Welcome back. So in this section, we wanted to discuss a bit about the form of the novel. So as we've mentioned previously, this is a series of kind of impressions, a very short chapters that kind of feel like poetry. And there is a very loose structure to the book. So I would say that this book is 99% character driven with the last 1% being generously <laughs> the kind of decision she makes at the end to pack up her life and take a year long research fellowship abroad. Everything else in the middle is just kind of her ambling around her life, feeling mildly dissatisfied. So I kind of looked into this, and this is what we, what we would call a vignette novel. And when I looked into other books, I was like, oh, maybe I've read others. I was like, I've read none of the other books on this list. <laughs> the only thing that comes to my mind is The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. And I think that was the last time anybody uttered the words vignette novel to me. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, have you read that? I did, but it was uh, summer reading when I was a freshman in high school, so it was a little heavy for entering into high school. 
I yeah, didn't... I mean, I've heard it like bandied about as like a really good book, but that was the only book on the Goodreads list that I saw that I recognized. I was like, I don't know any of these other novels. So yeah. the idea, I mean, for me, a vignette in my mind is like kind of like a very old photograph. Photo. Yeah. yeah. That's got kind of that like edge around it of the exactly uh, that it's like blackening around the edges. That's a vignette. Yeah. yeah. And I think a vignette in writing also has a similar feel, which is very small, very limited. Uh, that sounds that sounds so negative. I don't mean it in that way, but I mean it is like like you were saying, it's like a snapshot. It's not meant to be. Well, it has a very narrow focus, if you will. Yeah. Like. And I think compared to, for example, an epistolary novel, which would have a back and forth between people, mm-hmm. um, it is more aphoristic. So, I mean, not to get too pedantic, but it made me think of like Nietzsche's writing style in aphorisms. It's kind of like, oh, I have an idea. Let me write a paragraph about it. And then I'll stick all of my post-it notes together. And then it'll be immortalized as my musings in a book and it is kind of like that so again we're sounding very negative there's nothing wrong with this we're just saying this is not something that is common in fiction we don't have a lot of reference points for it and for me it was the idea that as much as this novel is introspective I felt like it was kind of a strange artifact of some time past. It, like where it's set, not where only, but when it's set is also a bit fuzzy. Like they have cell phones, but there's students not... are working on their computers. Yes, I know, but I feel like for me, it felt like it belonged. Felt like the eighties like the... to me. I was going to say like maybe late nineties, but yeah. That white couch <laughs> took me back oh, to God. the eighties oh, for some reason. <laughs> there's there's a vignette in this novel where the narrator who is single and childless, her one of her married friends comes over with her like annoying husband or obnoxious husband, I guess would be a more appropriate sort of descriptor for how our narrator feels about him and their child and she discovers after they've left that the child has drawn on her white couch with a ballpoint pen and that this is not a removable uh stain on the couch evidently which i I don't know i don't know if i even bought that i was like "Mm, i feel like my nana would have some answers to this (laughs) (laughs) being uh being a lover of white leather herself that couch would be reupholstered if necessary (laughs) i was gonna say she has like a complicated relationship with her mother so she may not have like had passed down such knowledge no i just feel like if you hired uh some kind of a fabric specialist they would probably have a solution to yes but it was about her annoyance I just feel like there was something about it felt very like retro miami Mm. 1980s (laughs) I'm imagining the walls are like Pepto-Bismol pink or like basil green. Oh my god, I I did not go into as much trouble to actually imagine her apartment. No, I was in trouble. My mind just created this map of her apartment. For some reason, I was like, I know this this single lady who lives alone. She's probably got like one of those ornamental bookshelves on one wall. 
I don't know why. I just had this like image immediately in my head of what this apartment would look like. Yeah, I just figured it would be kind of bare and she would have like... Which is weird, by the way, for a professor. Usually no one who's an academic is not a maximalist. (laughs) But I feel like it, it would kind of be functional wooden furniture that is neither like... It's not antique or anything like that, but it's definitely you know, not Ikea or, like, not new. Um, She would just kind of have a couple plants. I think that's representative also of what you were saying, too, is she doesn't have a strong relationship with her mother, so you sort of imagine that everything she owns, she has purchased for herself, that there's nothing that's, like, a hand-me-down. Yeah, and there's nothing sentimental in her home, I feel like. I feel like she has no photographs. There's no, like, music box from her grandmother or whatever. Like, it's, it's a very lonely house. I just feel like there's a certain sterility mm-hmm. in the reaction to the ballpoint pen incident. You know, not that, I mean, I don't know. If I had a friend with a kid who drew on my couch or like on any of my furniture, I would probably also be like, <laughs> what has this child done? I say that, but there are ink stains on my seating for me. But it's so. from you. Right. It's, it's different. Yeah, I guess. That's true. And it's very minimal. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just also feel I mean, this is probably me too. I grew up with like very ticky May like family members who get, you know, there's a scratch on my car from someone and I will never get over this. I will obsess Mm. about it until I get a new car kind of personalities. And I just developed this personality where I was like, I just can't. No, that's totally fair. About the scratch on the car or the ink stain on the seat. Or that any of it, like being alive involves some, some dings. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know <laughs> and if, if you won't learn that lesson, if this I will. character has like, she's so empty that she like hangs on to like these small bits. I did find like, it's funny that you said sterile. I did find that she was kind of sterile as much as we do get some backstory and we do get her in relation to a bunch of other people, we don't really know much about her. And I mean, I don't know if here is where you want to talk about the rat, but it kind of feels like sociopathic in a way, like how cold she is. Like she has such a cold lens on the world. And I don't know if this is, is where we can, we can talk about like the different in covers and in titles. And so the cover is what really attracted me to this book. And for me, I have the paperback in Italian and it's all in hues of like navies and cold whites. And it's a woman seen from behind and she's wearing like a wide sleeved white blouse and a very constructed floor length linen navy straight skirt. And then there's like a white vase on a linen white tablecloth. And she's like looking towards an open window where there's light coming. So it's all shadows. It's all very cold. You'll be able to see these on the Instagram as well. Mine is like kind of a golden brownish hue, I guess. Uh, It's a curtain. You can make out that it's like folds of fabric. I assume it's a curtain anyway. And... The majority of it is kind of in shadows, but there are strangely like lines of light across this curtain in a way that I feel like light does not come through things, but, or does not shine, like light doesn't shine in stripes. 
But anyway, that's that's the cover. And much like the difference in the title or titles of our books, the difference between the Italian and the uh, the English, which is the English is whereabouts, which sort of is very spatial in kind of a an abstract way with no indications of anything else. So I kind of expected this novel to also be I think whereabouts, honestly, it's the title of a poetry is, collection, absolutely. and more appropriately, because there's no character, there's no sense of anything besides just locations. A novel, Jhumpa Lahiri, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, and like the title, the cover has no person, is kind of nondescript, but also spatial. Yeah, and Dove Mi Trovo is really about me. It's about like it's in the eye, it's in the first person, and it has that double sense of where I find myself like right now. So that explains like chapters like the pool or the supermarket or the sea. Like so it yeah. explains that kind of situational perspective, but it's also like where I find myself, like where I discover who I am and, you know, what myself is in that sense. So I think like, yeah, it's very interesting how she translated that into whereabouts, which is so much more diffuse. But I wouldn't say that's inaccurate, though. I do feel like the book is very diffuse. Yeah, I mean, so maybe we'll get into this more in the next episode when we talk about translation, but I'm surprised given that she translated it herself that the title changed so significantly between, not that both both titles aren't apt descriptions of what the book ends up being, but I do feel the Italian title is better than the English title, even though the English title is not unreflective of the contents of the book. It just emphasizes different things. And I think that also does color one's reading experience. I think that's very true. And even like, I feel like straight from there, you go to the table of contents in this book. And like, I remember reading the table of contents, just, I don't know, because it was there. And I thought this is going to be, I guess I knew it was going to be a contemplative read on some level. Cause I was like, let me get the shape of this book by reading the contents in mine. All the chapters are either locations on the sidewalk, on the street, in the office, at the trattoria, or they're temporal. In spring, there's another one. In August. So time-based locations. I don't know. But there's no there's no kind of like human behind them or anything like that, right? Like it's all so I thought this was gonna be in a way I kinda thought this was gonna be like urban impressions mm. as a genre. Uh, which is just kind of like this idea of like a flinner or a, an urban walker who discovers a particular place through wandering is kind of what I was expecting. And I, again, it disappointed me on that level because that's also not what I got. You know, there was everything felt very generic. Yeah. I never really felt like I got a, an actual sense of place or location, which seems appropriate for something called whereabouts because that's very nonspecific. But at the same time, it's also like at some point, I just grew frustrated because I felt like, all right, great, but I'm tired of being in this like liminal non-space. Not everything can be the city we became. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to ask before we end, 
I noticed looking at the table of contents that there are three chapters that have the same name. In my edition, it's Trasse Esse. So like between myself and myself. I don't know what it would be in yours. In my head. Okay, it's in my head. So there are definitely like three, I would say like acts, I suppose. Like, So I don't think I'll reread this. But if I did reread this, I would probably try and pay attention. Oh, now that you mention it. Yeah, there are three in my heads and mine. That maybe I would just go back and read those three. Those three, just to see, uh, yeah, what, why in particular those three had or were marked off as having the same. I don't know. This book is like a puzzle. It is. I think you know. And again, it's interesting that it's like in my head, and in Italian, it's like between the self and the self, which is mm-hmm. also an other way of saying that that's I don't know to what extent people really want a puzzle in a book I find okay when I'm like working on a book right for research in a classroom or even when I was an undergrad and writing like a paper for the end of the semester a puzzle book is great in that context because it kind of does the work for you of helping you to find something to say because it just it we it's so open-ended that it's the there's so much room for interpretation. So I could see how this book would fit into an upper level like literature class mm-hmm. and comparative literature or or even in English since it won the Pulitzer Prize in English, which maybe at some point we should talk about that too, how weird it is that we've got an Italian book that won the Pulitzer Prize. But that's the only context where I really enjoy that yeah. I feel like is if it's a book that I'm going to be reading and rereading and rereading because I'm working on a project. Are you saying this book is too intellectual for us? <laughs> no, uh, I would I would never make no. such a claim. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I totally I totally see what you mean because, and in that sense, I guess we can talk about it briefly now. Like it makes sense that it won the Pulitzer just because. This is kind of like when we talk about movies that cater to the Oscars. <laughs> this is a book that caters to the Pulitzer. It has a... Um, the Pulitzer is also famously like, conservative. So, and it does, it's, it's inoffensive as a book, for sure. Exactly. It's completely inoffensive. And it has that classic feel of like, we don't know what time it's in. It doesn't really reflect the way people speak now. It won't feel dated in that way. And it's a puzzle book. So it's be like, oh, we can go back and reread it and discuss it. And like, as you say, like it completely has its place within syllabi. And as like an artifact of literature, I go back to this feeling that this book is an artifact, but it just feels strange to me. It's kind of like witnessing a classic being born and it feels weird because you're just like, it feels like it has no relevance to like this time or space. And yet I know that it it's future. To be honest, I, I don't feel we are seeing a classic being born. And maybe that's because I used to study contemporary literature when I was a master's student. That was the time period that I wanted to focus on. But it was such a popular time period that I was encouraged away from it. Basically, as like, you'll never get a job in academia. Turns out you'll never get a job in academia anyway. Thanks, guys. Nope. But I was encouraged away from contemporary literature. And one of the things that I found moving away from it is that actually it was very freeing because you invest, I find contemporary literature scholars invest so much time and energy into things like say Ian McEwan only to discover later. (laughs) I don't think Ian McEwan is going to be the author that we remember in a hundred years, you know? 
did he pander in the moment to something that maybe award granting committees wanted? Sure. Okay, maybe I should say like it feels like a book that wants to be a classic, whether yeah. or not it it will become. And I feel vindicated by the fact that it got recognized for the Pulitzer, yeah, and that you've just said that you know this could be a book that one could teach about. Um, yeah, yeah, and I think people will teach it in contemporary literature for a time, you know. But I think so many books come out that to be contemporary literature classes, unless you make them about like sort of post forty five literature and cla- like classics in that sense of like the the late 20th century um the syllabi change so much from year to year that you know someone might pop this on for a semester and then it slowly kind of like fades over time i'm just giving you my impression my fleeting fledgling transient impression (laughs) yeah and i think uh, my point is i think it will be fleeting (laughs) i think its success will be fleeting no i don't know i i just for me, I guess the challenge would be maybe this is a good book to have. If you like the book, then it's a book you could keep coming back to and keep reading. And you don't even have to read in one go. You could just open it up to your favorite chapter and read. It's just for me, I would need an assignment or a class to send me back the, to the book to yeah. puzzle through it. I would never choose to spend my time this way. I feel like there are so many books that I want to read that I'm more interested in or even that I want to reread. And this just would not make the cut. Like, I'm going to go reread a Colette novel before I reread this. And on that note, where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, for more about Colette, um, you can find me on Instagram at The Metropolitanist, at Metropolitanist on Twitter, or on my website, MaisonMetropolitanist.com. I post it on all things related to my research areas on those platforms. Elena, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Elena G. Mamrel, on Instagram at Spinoodler, and on my website, elenagotimamrel.com. If you want even more of my voice in your ears, you can listen to my other podcast, Philosophy Casting Call. Sophia, how can the listeners find more about Bookshelf Remix? You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bookshelf Remix and rate, review, and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This helps more people discover the show. You can email us at bookshelfremix at gmail.com and find episode transcripts by searching bookshelfremix on ko-fi.com. While you're there, please consider supporting us with a monthly pledge. We now have three tiers starting at just $1. So text a friend who likes to daydream about the show. Text a friend who likes gelato about the show. And don't forget to give your bookshelf a good remix. Remix.